I'd like to first, I guess, welcome everybody for joining us today. Some of you have joined us this morning with Rabbi Silver's class to kick off our LO program for this year. And today we're lucky enough to have Rabbi Dr. Yoke Fronstein uh, for our second uh, second class in the series in the nine different series that we're offering this year. Rabbi Dr. Yosef Bronstein, he received a rabbinical ordination from Reef and a PhD in Talmudic studies from the Bernard Rebel Graduate School of Jewish Studies uh, with a focus on Mitra Shalacha. He currently teaches Jewish philosophy and halacha and Michal at Nevasar Yushlaim or colloquial, colloquially, whatever, regularly known as MMY, and online for Yeshiva University's Isaac Breyer's College or IBC. Uh, he has two books hopefully coming out soon Engaging the Essence, the Philosophy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe from Maggid Books and Rishimot Shiurim Shalmaran Harab Yosef Dov Talavejik and Misachat Kiddushin. So we're very, very lucky to have you. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Bronstein, for, uh, for joining us today. And without further ado, please take it away. Thank you. Thank you, Yudis. And thank you, everybody. Thank you, everybody else, for joining us. And before I start, this is my first formal shear at, at Drisha, my first formal, my first formal presentation. So I just want to mention, I'm not sure to whom, to Yudis, to, to, to the cloud, how lucky I am, how privileged I feel to be able to join the program at Drisha. I've been, a, I've, I've emailed Rabbi Silver this morning, that I've been a long admirer of Drisha from afar. I've certainly taken part in some of their, some of their online programs. Um, but I have, and I've seen the impact on myself and on, on, on some of my peers and, and, my, my, and my social group, but it's my first formal time um, on this end of the, of, of, the, of the screen. So I just wanted to mention how privileged I feel, and a big thank you to Rabbi Silver, to Yudis, to, to, Rabbi, to Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Zukier for, 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 for bringing me up. So God willing, over the course of the next four Sundays, we're going to be discussing the emotions of tshuva, the focus on three 20th century figures, um, the Rev, Rev, Rev Cook, Rev Soloveitchik, and Rev Cook, Rev Soloveitchik, and, 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 and Lubavitcher Rebbe. So in this class, though, we're going to be, we're not going to be talking about them per se. We're going to be doing almost a background to see how innovative and how interesting and what they did with the earlier sources. We're going to be looking at a traditional medieval approach to the concept of chupa. So what we're going to do today is we're going to divide the presentation into four parts. The first part is going to be a general introduction to the series. Then we're going to describe the emotions of tshuva um, from the perspective of the major Rishonim, major medieval commentators, focusing on a little bit of Rambam, but mostly Rabbeinu Yona, the author of Shari Tshuva, The Gates of Repentance, which is one of the primary books that people study during the month of Elul. Um, then we're going to look at some modern expressions of this approach. We're going to look at people in the 19th and 20th centuries, and even 21st centuries, that just take these things literally and apply them to their lives. And we're going to see, almost in real life, in real experiential terms, what that means for their Elul, what that means for their Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And then we're going to discuss a little bit at the end, but it's going to be this is a much broader topic, about how this approach relates to some of our modern sensibilities of concepts of happiness, joy, sadness, psychological health, mental health, and, and, and things of that sort. And we get a little bit of a sense as to why certain 20th century figures moved away from this traditional approach. Good. Um, so that then is going to be a basic, a basic background. Um, feel, I'm going to stop at various points uh, to, to, um, to, to take questions. If there are any questions, questions or comments, comments are also totally fine. Um, if anybody, if you, have a, if you have a question, you have a comment, feel free to write it in the chat, and I will, I will try to address it at the, at the appropriate time. 
Um, also, the source sheet is linked at linked on the chat. So if you if you follow, I'm I'm I'm, I'm not going to share my own screen because then it, it's hard to see other people. Um, but if you if you want to follow along inside, feel free to download the, the to download the source sheet at at the link. So. So what are we focusing on? So most of the Jewish literature about tshuva focuses on the halachos of tshuva. Tshuva is a, is a mitzvah, according to most Rishonim. It is a commandment, one of the 613 commandments, according to most commentators. And therefore, like every other halakha, it has details, it has steps, it has a process. And what the Rambam, Rabbeinu Yonah, different, the Me'iri, when he wrote his, his book on tshuva, but mostly what they're trying to figure out is what are the technical steps that one has to do to fulfill this mitzvah of tshuva and attain atonement. We are not going to be focusing on the technical steps of tshuva. We are going to be focusing on the emotional associations, the emotional journey that's supposed to accompany this process, this, the, the, these, these technical steps. It's almost going to be like a study in phenomenology. A phenomenology was a, it was, a, it was a branch of philosophy in the early 20th century, where instead of discussing the essence of something, whatever it is, they took in sort of a perspective of a human being experiencing that item or experiencing that experience and trying to describe it from the inside out. So we're not going to be describing tshuva, the mechanics, how it works, metaphysically how does tshuva work, um, what are the steps to tshuva. We're going to be discussing that a little bit, was you need that for the framework. We're going to be discussing phenomenologically, how does one experience this process, how does one, how does one experience tshuva. And as a starting point for our entire discussion, I think it's, it's, it's extremely important to get to read through the, the first source on the source sheet, which is a, an essay, which is an excerpt of an essay from, 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 from Rabbi Soloveitchik. Um, there are certain, when Rabbi, Rabbi Soloveitchik passed away in the, in the early 90s, apparently he left behind um, closets or desks filled with manuscripts that were yet unpublished. It took them, it took the family several law cases, several, several lawsuits and several disputes um, to, find, to find the right people to publish them. But you know, now, currently, Cora and Magid Press is, 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 uh, is in the process of publishing a good number of these unpublished manuscripts. So three years ago, in 2017, um, there was a book called Halachic Morality that came out from unpublished essays of Rav Salvechik. And Rav Salvechik there has an essay entitled Religious Styles. And I think for me, this was an extremely important essay, which sort of frames what we're going to be doing now and a lot of what I like to, what, a lot of what I like to do when I try to study Jewish philosophy myself. So let, let's read it together. It's a long excerpt where we'll highlight some of the key lines and people can read more on their own if they want to. So Rabbi Salvechik writes as follows. He says, we have in Torah a dera Hashem and a dera Hachayim. What does that mean? A way of God and a way of life. I, introduce, I want to introduce here another term. Besides possessing a Torah way of life, we also have a Torah style of living. We call it a signo nachayim. So you have the path of Torah, which we're going to see for Absalvechik is very narrow. Halakha has very clear boundaries. You know, it wasn't a major pluralism when it comes to halakha. There is one approach to halakha. Halakha is like a form of science. But there, is, but there are many signon hachayim. There are many styles of life. There are many ways of doing it, many ways of experiencing it. So, so let's read it in his own words. The difference between the two is obvious. The way of a religious life is universal. Everyone travels along the same path. Again, this is debatable. This is Russell Beach's conception of halacha. No highway is paid for just one individual and denied to all others. Skip down to, to after the ellipsis, skip down a line and a half. However, two people may travel on the same highway in the same direction, following the same signs, 
yet each may have individual style of movement. One moves gracefully with rhythm to his movements, while another moves clumsily, awkwardly, always out of step with his co-traveler as you can walk down the highway in different paths. The next paragraph, which you're not going to be decided, so basically describes how you could have two people going through the same rituals at the night of the Seder. One of them is experiencing ecstasy, joy, singing, dancing, bringing the family into it, running around the table. And another person, serene, solemn, serious. They're both doing the same rituals. They're both reading the same text, but they have two different religious styles. Um, let, let's read the last line of this paragraph that's underlined. There was one way of Jewish life, but there are, but there are a variety of styles of how to experience God while performing one's duty. That they should do, this refers to going beyond the letter of the law. Each person in his own manner, in his own manner or style. So this is going to be the basic framework they're going to be working within. All the people we're going to be discussing are going to be discussing the same technical process, but there's going to be a different flavor. Why do different people have different flavors? Because Rav Slavichik in this essay says, because each person is an individual. Another major theme of Slavichik's thought. Each person is unique. Each person has, has, each person has their own personality style, their own personality style, their own thought processes, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, each one experiences God differently. What we're going to be arguing, and this is something Rav Slavichik is not so comfortable saying, as, uh, as we'll discuss next week, is that also your, the culture you're living within, the time period you're living within, is going to determine, partially at least, your religious style. If you're living in the 1100s and 1200s and 1300s in Egypt or in Egypt or Spain, you're very likely to have one religious style. If you're living in 20th century America, 21st century America, the cultural baggage you have, for better or for worse, when you approach Jewish texts and when you approach Jewish rituals, very well, very well, very well might change or modify for you the way you experience these things. And that's why we're going to be arguing that the 20th century was a little bit of a turning point in terms of how tshuva could or should be experienced. Um, and therefore, you have this wide gamut. Rav Slavichik, Rav Kotl, Babish Rebbe, discussing each one individually, where they're coming from, what they kept, what they changed, and why they did that. Um, but, that's, but, but, but that's going to be, the, the common denominator is that they all grew up in like Eastern European rabbinic homes, they all created very strong Torah communities on different shores, of Slovakia, Kulabashrebi in New York, Rav Kook in Israel. They kept a certain flavor of that Eastern European Jewish life of the Alterheim, but they very consciously did not create carbon copies. And that's where we're going to be focusing on how that manifests itself when it comes to the experience of Jews. Um, even before we get to just talking about, you know, the, the, the 20, just before we even get to talking about the traditional approach to Chuba, I wanted to just give you two very short clips, both from 2017, from, th from two years ago, to see what range we could be talking about in terms of how Chuba could be experienced. Um, this, this will take around, around four minutes. So I'm going to share my screen to show you two different YouTube clips. Um, the, the first one, one second, the first one is from this is Rav Ravid Nagar. Ravid Nagar is an Israeli. He's, um, he's from Timani descent. He runs an organization called Oral Noar, which is a Kirib organization. As you can see, he skews Haredi, but he has a lot, a lot of very interesting views, a lot of very interesting things to say on all different, all different topics. I was just recently reading something from his question answer, question answer forum, which he has online, and there was a woman that asked him if, she could be, if it's mutter for her, if it's permissible for her to become a tayasa, to become a pilot in the Israeli army. A lot of Haredi rabbis would say, no, it's prohibited on a variety of grounds. 
he said, no, you have to be careful of X, Y, and Z. But if you feel like this is your job, you, you're drawn towards this, there's a way to do it in a way that is going to sanctify God's name. So he's not, no, it's sort of an out-of-the-box variety. This is a speech he gave about Elo. I'm going to play you a minute. The English translation is on the, is on the sheet under source number two. Get the background, get the tone, and, 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 get, and, and catch the language as well. So did you guys catch that? Somebody telling teenagers, uh, the word, if an aryeh, if a lion is running towards you, you have to be scared. Aryeh is Rashi Tevot, it's a pneumonic. The Aleph, the first letter of aryeh is Elul. The Rash, the second letter of aryeh is Rosh Hashanah. The Yud, the third letter of aryeh is Yom Kippur. The Hey, the fourth letter of aryeh is Hashanah Rabbah. These are the four days, the four time periods of judgment. You have to be scared. If you're not scared, there's something wrong with you. He's, he's speaking to, to nominally, observant Israeli teenagers. You caught the background in the back, the raging sea, the tone of voice. This is one way of experiencing Chodesh Elul, the month of Elul, and that is what we're going to be discussing today. Um, here is a second way of experiencing the month of Elul, and this is going to be more the last two classes, but let us, let's, at least, um, let us, let, let's at least foreshadow a little bit. This is from a, a shul, or a, a Karabakh shul, that is a couple of meters away from where I'm currently staying. This is the first night of Slikos in the Karabakh Shul. So that is the way, I actually stopped in there, stopped in there one year just to see what the experience is like or to experience what it's like. And it's very different than anything I've ever experienced before. This is the range that we're talking about. And we're going to be describing some of the, I guess, the philosophical backgrounds and the, the sources which allow you to experience Elo in method A and method B. And these are both from 2017. They were these, both of these videos were produced less than a month away from each other, both in Israel. Great. So without further ado, let us move on to section two, which is the medieval approach based on the Rambam and Rabino Yona to the emotions of Shuvah. But before you, before you go on, any comments or questions? Great. So far, so good. Great. So let us, before we get to the emotions of Shuvah, let us look at, just technically speaking, what is the process of Shuvah? So look at source number four on, on the source, on, on the, in, in the, on the source sheet. 
is the Rambam Hilcho Shuvah, the Rambam the Walls of Shuva, chapter 2, Halacha 2. Mahi Hachuva, this is where the Rambam defines for us what actually is Shuva. It's a very simple process, it seems like. Um, these components are slightly debated by other people, but it's basically the same formula if you go through all of the various commentators. Who should Bachoti Chato? If you want to follow in English, follow in English. English is from Chabad.org, which has a free English translation of the entirety of, of Rambam. Step one, Yazul Bachoti Chato, you have to stop sinning. Remove the sin from your mind. Make a Kabbalah, make a decision for the future to no longer um, sin, sin in the future. Skip down the line. And also, you have to regret the past. So the steps of Chuba are fairly simple. Stop sinning, regret the past, make a commitment for the future to not do it again, the Rambam says at the very end, you have to verbalize all of these elements, and pitom, good, you fulfilled the mitzvah of tshuva, you achieved kapara, you achieved atonement. Good. So what we're interested in more in now is the emotional associations with this process. So one halacha later, the Rambam tells us as follows. This is sort of all we get from the Rambam. Rabino Yonah is going to elaborate on this a lot more. Source number five. Midarchai hatshuva. One is the path of tshuva. Again, our salvation called this signon. This is like the path. This is the way you're supposed to experience the process. Leos hashav tzoek tamid, the hashav. The person doing tshuva has to constantly cry out to God. Bevechi, with tears, v'tachanunim, pleading. Vosat staka kifikoko, and give staka, give as much charity as possible. Misrachi karbe ben hadavar, and to distance yourself entirely from this item with which you sin. So the Raman doesn't give us so much, but what does he give us? You have to scream, pray to God, bechi in tachanunim, there's a certain element of sadness that comes along with the regret over what you did in the past. Again, it could be somewhat intuitive, we're gonna see people moving away from this, but the Raman just gives us a certain sense of sadness of, uh, and regret um, that we have when we, move, when we think about our past mistakes. Um, if you turn to the next page, we're going to be focusing up for the next couple of minutes on Rabino Yona. Rabino Yona was a was a Spanish Rishon living in the, in the in living, living in the 1300s. He was both a halachasis, a community leader, and an early named Kabbalist. But he's most famous for this book, Shari Chuva, Gates of Repentance, which originally was part of a longer work, most of which was lost. But Shari Chuva. Was, was, was copied over in the next generation. It's already referenced by his students as a seminal work that should be studied day in, day out. And over the course of time, it sort of won its place in, this, in the Jewish canon. And it is something that is studied very widely in Yeshivot and Mitrashot, even, even to today, during the month of El. So in the first part of Shari Yeshuva, Rabbeinu Yonah describes the same steps as the Rambam. You have to stop doing your sin, you have to express regret, you have to make a commitment for the future. Then he goes through Ikari Hachuva, some of the main principles of Chuva. Here are some of the main principles of Chuva. So source number six. Hayagon. What's Yagon? Misery, grief. That's a word used by the rabbis, the Chazal, when they're describing mourning, when describing the way you feel when a close relative passes away. A person should, uh, your, your, your conscience should, should darken, you should think. 
How bad am I that I rebelled against God? And it's not enough to experience this once. You have to sit there and think and contemplate in order to elicit the emotion of yagon, of misery, of grief, and intensify it as much as possible within your heart. And a storm has to start churning in your mind. And you have to sigh out of complete bitterness. He goes on to explain, because if you just say, I'm sorry that I did it, it's not going to be enough. He says that if you lose a dollar, if you lose a small coin, you express some regret. If you lose a million dollars, you express a lot more regret. If you sin against God, you have, that is all the more so on the scale of a million dollars, you have to feel like your entire life has gone to waste. Similar to somebody that lost a very, that lost a very, very precious treasure. Skip down to Os Yud Gimel, to the last line of source number six. He writes as follows. The levels of tshuva and how accomplished, how elevated your tshuva is, it's based on how much you feel this misery, this grief. How do you know if you, if you are accomplished a positive tshuva, a positive sense that it did what it was supposed to do, that you're cleansed before God, if you feel misery? grief, mourning, like you're worthless, then you know that you're cleansed. If you think this is bad, or this is bad, if you think this is a full description, he goes on for pages about similar associative types of emotions that are connected with yoga. Look at source number seven. And source number seven is two lines later in Shari Chuba. He writes as follows. Another principle of Chuba, Hatsar B'maaseh. You have to feel distress over what you did. What does it mean to feel distress over what you did? He goes on to explain. Come on, he quotes a pasuk. Skip down to the second line. The eyes and the heart are the two intermediaries. They're two channels through which we sin. Um, why? Because he quotes a measurish that says, your eyes see something, your heart covets it, and then you go ahead and do it. But the intermediaries between your brain and the actual action are the eyes seeing it and your heart coveting that action or that item. So if you're talking about tsar bimasa, you have to feel distress over what you did. That means these faculties of the human being, these faculties, these limbs of the human being have to feel distress. What does it mean for the eyes to feel distress? You have to cry. The eyes crying is a kapara, it atones, it's the distress which cleanses the eyes from being part, taking part in that process of sin. What does it mean for the heart to feel distress? He quotes the Pasuk, Leiv nishbar a broken heart, God is, not going to re- God is not going to reject. You have to feel broken on the inside. You have to feel worthless. Another thing, I should have put this in the sheet, another thing he talks about is shiftless. Shiftless literally means degradation. You have to feel degraded by sin. You have to feel like you're worthless. He says you have to go around the street looking at other people and thinking, that person is better than me. It doesn't matter if that person is like tripping an old lady as she's crossing the street, at the same time they're stealing candy from a baby. It doesn't matter. You sinned, 
you have to feel shiftless. You have to feel degraded. You have to feel like you are lo lower than other people. In the end of this piece, in source number seven, he quotes a halachic analogy. He says that if you have a klicharis, you have an earthenware, earthenware vessel that is mekambal tumah, that is contaminated through contact with a corpse or with some other contaminating force, there is no way for that earthenware vessel, for that china, to become pure unless it is broken. The breaking of a vessel is what purifies it. Similarly, about the human personality, and particularly about the limbs that cause a person to sin, what do you have to do to cleanse yourself, to purify yourself? You have to break yourself. You know, I think, you know, I was raised that you have to channel. You know, you have these positive parts of yourself, you have to channel them in the right way. You have to make sure that they're not being used for bad, they're being used for good. We're not talking about channeling. We're not talking about changing your orientation. We're talking about taking your personality and breaking it, feeling like you're worthless, and then rebuilding yourself up from those ashes. So we have yago, we have misery, we have tsar bima'asa, we have distress in the action, distress in the limbs that cause the, that they, that, that cause the sin. Right, if, you, if, you're, if you're following the source and, and source number four, you have this person carrying the big ball, the big ball of guilt. Um, between sources seven and eight, that for me was the was the imagery of what Rabino Yona is trying of what Rabino Yona is trying to is 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 is, 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 is trying to depict. Um, source number eight, skipping down a couple of pages in Rabino Yona in Shari Tshuva, we move forward from feeling broken on the inside to da'aga. Da'aga literally means Rory, or the more modern term for it is anxiety. My wife is a psychologist, and she practices, she practices, here, practices here in Israel in Hebrew. I'm, 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 I should have mentioned I'm, that I'm based in Ramat Bichamesh. Thank God I'm married, married, to, married to Dr. Matya Reckon-Bronstein, a great person, and four beautiful kids. Um, I feel much more like a parent and a spouse during this corona period than a, than a teacher. So I'm sorry if the, if the teaching is, is, coming, is coming, coming off rough. Um, but no, da'aga is a word that's used as a technical psychological term in Israel for anxiety. Um, and that is, it's not a newfangled meaning of the word daga, that is what the word daga means in rabbinic Hebrew. For Rabino Yona, an ikar of tshuva, a principle of tshuva, is feeling daga, is feeling anxiety, feeling worry. Why? He says there are three different things you have to feel anxiety over. Number one is punishment. If you sin, the Torah says, you will get punished in this world or all the world to come. You have to be scared about that. You have to worry about that and therefore fix yourself. Second paragraph, the ocean is Yidak. Another thing to have anxiety about is maybe somebody, maybe, even though you're doing chuva, even though you feel yago, you feel misery, you feel grief, you feel distress, it's not enough. You're not doing enough. You have to feel anxiety that maybe even though I'm doing chuva, I'm not doing enough chuva. That this there's this type of mindset, which I think my wife would say is, again, if it's taken to the extreme, is something which is diagnosable. Like you're doing something, you're doing the process, you're doing it correctly, but you're always concerned, maybe I'm not doing it enough. Maybe I'm not doing it correctly. So the first thing you have to have anxiety over is the fear of punishment. Second thing you have to have anxiety over is maybe you're not doing tshuva properly. Number three, in the last paragraph over here, the yidag, another thing to have anxiety over, Baal Tshuva, somebody who is in the process of doing Tshuva, Penyas Gavir of Yitzro. Maybe your Yitzhahara, maybe your evil inclination will get the better of you the next time. 
Because if you failed once, maybe you're going to fail again. And you, he says this is not just something which you should think about once over the course of your day, once over the course of the compressed tshuva. These things have to weigh down on you. They have to bear on you. You have to be thinking about it constantly during the process of tshuva. Maybe I'm not doing enough. Maybe God's going to punish me. Maybe if I'm put in the same situation, I'm not going to withstand the test. And all of those things are part of the process of tshuva. Um, again, if this was in person and people and people were my students in a regular classroom, I would stop here and ask for whether or not anybody was taught this as a proper approach to tshuva um, in their in, in their Jewish day schools or, or, or equivalent thereof. Um, I know myself that I didn't realize how much my education as a product of 20th century Jewish thought until I started reading medieval Jewish thought. And you see what the continuities are, but you also see what the ruptures are, and you see what messages are very clearly in the Rishonim, and what messages over the course of time sort of got reoriented and skewed, like Rav Salvechek said, because there's a different signona chayim today, it's a different mentality, a different mindset, a different way we experience life, and therefore we, we're not creating geshmi ayin, we're not creating a new process of tshuva, but many of us are going to experience it differently, because of the people that we are and because of the generation that we live in. And we're, that's, sort of, that's something we're going to be highlighting from our Soviet Rav Kook, and Lavish Rebbe as we, as, as, as we go on. Good. So we just described some of the associative emotions of the process of Shuba. For Rabbi Yonah, you have yoga, you have misery, you have distress, you have shiftless degradation, you have anxiety. And that's all in the first part of the book, Shari Tshuva, Sha'ar Aleph, the first gate, where he describes the Ikari Tshuva, the, the principles of Tshuva. The Shara Beis, the second gate of Tshuva, second gate of the book, he describes the motivating factors for Tshuva. Granted, this is the process I'm supposed to go through. What motivates me to go through that process? So he mentions six different motivating factors. But what is the C? What is the P? What is the last motivating factor that's supposed to be in everybody's mind constantly as they do tshuva. Look at source number nine. If you have, if you have the sheet in front of you, he calls it zechiras yom hamavas, remembering the day of death. Call ace yikon dikras avokar. At every moment, you should prepare yourself to meet your creator. Kilo adam es ito. A person doesn't know their own time. Therefore, your innards have to, have to be darkened. You have to prepare yourself for righteousness. To return your soul to your creator with purity. To the God that gave you your soul. And every day you have to think about this. Maybe today is my last day. And therefore, I have an obligation to repent and cleanse myself and purify myself and go through that process he described in the first gate in Shara Aleph today. If you look at the last paragraph, I'm not going to read it inside, he says this is not something which you only do on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. It has to be tummit, it has to be constant. You have to be constantly reminding yourself that life here is transient, life here is temporary. Unfortunately, we've, we've all had crazy amounts of reminders in the last couple of months, if that's true, but most of us didn't, up until COVID, most of us didn't, I, know, I can't speak for most of us, I don't really know the people here, I know for myself, did not live with this consciousness that you no know, life is transient, I'm still relatively young, I'm 35 years old, my kids are pretty young, they keep me busy, I don't have to have so much time to contemplate and meditate about, about the meaning of life. And, and yeah, I can honestly say I have not fulfilled this mandate of Rabbi Yonah to remember the day of death every day. If I did, 
during Corona time, when, when unfortunately people I know did pass away, and unfortunately there was a lot of thoughts about mortality, it's very paralyzing for me. It's very paralyzing. You can't make plans for the future. I want to finish this project. I want to see my kids do X, Y, and Z. I wanted to experience X, Y, and Z with my spouse. Because every day you're thinking about, though, there's no reason to plan for the future and make long-term plans and enjoy reaching those plans if every day you're just be, be, be sat with anxiety that maybe today is going to be my last day and you're thinking about transience of life and mortality. I'm sorry that I'm, I'm I should, have, I should have given a trigger, trigger warning for this class that this is going to be the heavy class. And as we go on, we'll, we'll move away from the heaviness and, and, move, and move more to the Krabach in, in uh, varying, varying stages. Um, but for Rabino Yona, this is a very powerful, very, very powerful motivating factor to go through with the chuva process as difficult as the chuva process is. Um, so good. So you have a whole slew of emotions that we would describe maybe as negative, as heavy. And a motivating factor also is something which is extremely heavy, extremely, extremely scary and dreadful. So that is, that is section two of this presentation. Just going through, again, I'm dramatizing it a little bit. There's a lot more in Shari Tshuva um, other than these highlights, but this is create, trying to create an emotional picture based on some of the things, so some of the things he describes. I remember when I was 18 years old, and I was in, I was in yeshiva, and I was told what people are supposed to do is they learn Shari Tshuva in the month of Elul. I learned Shari Tshuva in the month of Elul, and I could tell you, half of me was scared of my wits, and half of me just thought, I don't half believe this, I don't really want to do this. Um, there was like a lot of cognitive dissonance before I, before I was uh, introduced to the wider, wider breadth of, wider breadth of Jewish thought. But let's assume you're taking this approach, you're taking the Rabbeinu Yonah approach, and you want to apply it practically. You want to, you want to, you want to experience Elul with these feelings. What is your Elul going to look like, and how are you supposed to get there? So, so before I move on to the next section, to, to looking at, at some of the people from the, from the more recent Muslim movement, um, take, picking up on these themes, does anybody have any comments, comments, critiques, or, or questions before we move on? Yeah, Daniel, please. Hi. Um, so I'm curious how notions of teshuva changed among, varied uh, between Ashkenazi and Sephardi post game, um, based on their surrounding communities, kind of with, you know, Muslim notions of um, of repentance versus kind of you know, a more Christian notions of repentance. That is a great, great question. Um, I, if I recall correctly, it's either Yisrael Tashma or Frank Kainerfogel, who both write on the time period of the Rishonim, point out that the, I didn't, quote, I didn't quote any of it here, but the heaviest, heaviest passages you find about Shuvah and what you have to do to, to, to achieve atonement are among the Hasidic Ashkenaz, the pietists on Germany in the 1100s, um, who, they were the ones that advocated that members of their group should literally roll in the snow to cause bodily pain to the limb that committed the sin in order to achieve atonement. So it's not just emotional distress, it's actually putting yourself in physical distress. And you'll find that almost everybody, Masil Tasharim, you know, the, the, the ultimate Musar book uh, that people study today, says in the first chapter, do not think you have to roll in the snow to achieve the heights in the service of God to elevate yourself. He's referring to a real group of people that did that in order to achieve these heights. So uh, to be honest, I do not know 100%. My fields are basically Chazal, Mitra Shalacha, and 20th century Jewish philosophy. Everything in between is a little bit, little bit easy for me. Um, but I do know that in terms of the heaviness of Tshuva, the Hasidic Ashkenaz 
very, and sorry, what's the point of this? They're very heavily influenced by the Christian surroundings who are also into these types of heavy forms of repentance in Germany in the 1100s during the time period. Um, I cannot speak for people for, for, pe for people in the in, in Sephardi lands, um, but in Muslim lands, but I do know that they highlight Hasidic Ashkenaz as the heaviest you get within the Jewish tradition. And we're, we're not going to see it inside. Barzalbechik himself rejects the Hasidic Ashkenaz on, on several other passages about several other issues relating to this in terms of asceticism, in terms of in terms of not gaining pleasure from from the from from the beauty of this world. But thank you, Daniel, for the question. Um, and if you have anything else to say about it, please feel free to feel free to, feel free to chime in. Um, good. 1800s. 1800s, we're not talking about Egypt and Corona and Spain, we're talking about Eastern Europe. Yisrael Salanter, um, he was not from Salant, he was from a lesser known city in Lithuania, that's the name I'm forgetting now. Um, but he studied under Abzudo of Salant, and therefore he became known as Yisrael of Salant. And he is the founder of the modern Muslim movement. What does that mean? That means he went around Europe to the various yeshivot that were there, and to the various people studying Gemara, and told them it's not enough to study Gemara, not enough to study Jewish law, not enough to study Chumash, not enough to study Rashi. You have to study Musar, ethical teachings, and actively work on yourself, understand your unconscious, do behavioral activism. He has all these you know, pre-Freudian things. He has a whole essay, what he calls the Machshava Pnimi versus Machshava Chitzoni which basically means the conscious and subconscious thought. And he talks about you have to realize your, sub, realize your subconscious negios, your subconscious biases about yourself before you can actually work on yourself and fix yourself. Very, very rigid, very, very methodical, very, very ethically based. Or Yisrael is a series of letters he sent out to various people about Musar, about studying Musar. Um, in letter 14 in Or Yisrael, you have one of the most famous statements about the month of Elul in Haredi Yeshivos today. This is quoted all over the place, as we'll see. But Rav Yisrael Salanter says as follows, and he's writing this in the mid-1800s. He says, yadati, source number 10. Earlier, when, the, in, when I knew, he says, when I was a young person, he studied in Salant in the, in the 1820s. Everybody was beset with terror. Mikol HaKorei Kadosh Elul. When people called out Elul. This trepidation, this fear, bore fruits. To draw people close to the service of God. What is what he saying? That when they announced the month of Elul was approaching in shuls, in yeshivot, people would tremble. People would tremble. He says he saw this himself. And he says, but in my generation, I don't see it as much. He's writing now as an older person. He says, you read, you read Asadaros, there's a descent of the generations. People today don't feel El as much. And therefore, he says, what, practically speaking, do you have to do to achieve these emotions that Rabbi Yonah described, the fear, the anxiety, the heaviness of El? It's a month like any other month. It's, no, it's during August, and we're still on vacation, many of us, um, et cetera, et cetera. What do we have to do to feel the heaviness of El? Yisrael Salanter is extremely, extremely consistent in his approach to life. Study Musar methodically. Read Rabino Yona. Read Mesilat Yisharim. Read other books that describe your obligation, describe the way you're supposed to feel. And he has a whole method of how you're supposed to read them. You're supposed to read them bespilus. You're supposed to read them all shakuling, with your eyes closed, repeating a line over and over again. 
each time elevating your voice higher and higher. So until the end of the day, you're screaming. And by doing these things, you will convince yourself, you will enter the mindset of Ella. But he says, if you don't study Musar, you don't read Rabbi Yona, you don't read these books that describe what you're supposed to feel during Ella, there's no chance you're going to actually tap in to the improper emotional state we're all supposed to be feeling right now on Gimel Elo on the third on the third day of El. So practically speaking, for Yisrael Salanter, what does this mean? What is the entryway to experiencing Elo like Rabino Yona? Every day, half an hour, an hour, or he doesn't give a time, study Musar the way he describes, you will eventually put yourself, enter that emotional mindset, that emotional space. But that's not enough. Let's say every day, I'm sitting in my beautiful merpeset in Israel, looking at the beautiful mountains. I'm having my kids play in a sprinkler in my merpeset that we, that, we, that we just bought for like for a 10 shekel, which broke today. And, it, and the scene around me is beautiful. And the kids are playing in the park and the birds are chirping and everything, everything is serene and beautiful. And I'm studying Shara Tshuva, studying Rabbi Yona, And I'm reading about how I have, to feel, I have to feel fear and anxiety and how horrible of a person I am. There's a disconnect between what I'm reading and what I'm trying to get myself to believe and feel and experience and the environment that I'm in. And therefore, what did the next generation of Bali Musar say? What do you have to do during Elo in order to properly experience Elo? Stay in a closed environment. If you're in a yeshiva or a midrasha, meaning there are Bali Musar talking about yeshiva, they're gonna be looking at a recusable Levenstein, Stay in yeshiva. Don't go out to the streets. Go out to the street as little as possible. Because the street is not experiencing Elo. The street is experiencing whatever the street normally experiences. People are happy. People are happy lucky. People are going about their business. People are shopping. People are going on recreation. People are going on vacations. You're not going to enter the space of Elo if you're, if you're living in that environment. You have to stay in a closed environment in the yeshiva. And then, by learning Musar, by staying with the people that are invested in experiencing this together with you, you will be able to experience El properly, experience the process of the truth properly. Look at source number 11 on the next page. You have Kaskal Levenstein. Kaskal Levenstein was a, not a student of Israel Salanter, a student of a student of Israel Salanter, but he was a major figure of the Muslim movement, one of these bridge figures. He had a, he was a, he was a, he was, a, he was the Mashkiach, I mean, basically the head of Musar in the Mira Yeshiva in Europe pre-World War II. He was the Mashkiach in Shanghai. When the Mir Yeshiva fled to Shanghai, he was the person, one of the people that kept people together. They published his sermons, his discourses from that time period. It's chilling to read them, what he was telling the Yeshiva guys when they're in Shanghai in the middle of World War II. After the war, he actually immigrated to America for two years, eventually made his way to Israel, and eventually made his way to Panovich, where he became one of the main Mashkiach in Panovich in Bnei Brak, um, where, where Rav Shach was a Rashiva and he, he was a Mashkiach, um, and he basically was one of the founders of the Muslim movement in the, in the, in the Haredi world in the modern state of Israel. See, he has a, they, they publish uh, his discourses, his sermons, in six volumes called Or Yechesko. So Chilad Beis, the second volume, talks about Elo the Amunarayim, Elo and the Days of Awe in Rashan Yom Kippur. He quotes the story of Israel Salanter, then Israel Salanter says in the early 1800s, Everybody was scared when they announced that. Well, you look at the, the first line, source number 11, the middle of the line. I wasn't able to cut, to cut the line in the middle. He says he himself experienced an assembly. This Gama Ni I also remember 
the million to see from the days of my youth. He was born in 1868, if I remember, 1870. So I have the year somewhere. Um, he was born in, sorry, 1885. Sorry, 1885. He says, I remember from the days of my youth and in, the, in the 1890s. The lone day yeshiva's lamja, and I learned in yeshiva and lamja, which was a Muslim yeshiva in Poland. How you been the alum miskan semen arim with Nate Tfilas The young boys, myself included, would gather together before the evening prayers, the Mosai Shabbos Kodesh, at the end of the week. The chadr chashuv in the dark room. The Rav David Tevel mitalmide, going to be so anter, Rav David Tevel, another figure in the Mr. Movement, how you medaber different yisoras with talk, words of arousement. We would all say together, God bring us back, allow us to repent. This is what Yishol Sander had in mind. You need a group of people doing it together, learning muster together. Otherwise, you're not going to enter that emotional space. He goes on to say, what does this mean for me? Now that I'm sort of, he's not saying I'm in charge of a yeshiva, but now that he's in the point of leadership, what is he advising the young Bachrim, the young yeshiva students in Panovich and Benebrak the 1960s. Um, look at look at the after the after the ellipsis. Says man anan. What are we going to say? Shabbos manenu in our time. Shayrak asher yotzim lerchovashayir. If you walk into the street, miad mitpasheta takrivut benafshenu. A coldness towards elu. A coldness towards chuba spreads within our hearts. What street was he talking about? Talking about the streets of B'nai Brak. Has anybody here ever walked the streets of B'nai Brak? It's not, 1970s was different than it is today. The streets of B'nai Brak are among, you know, the, I don't know, the holiest, I don't know, it's hard for me to, to, to measure these things, but the streets of B'nai Brak are very different than, than the streets of Manhattan. B'nai Brak is a Haredi city. You're not going to be hearing secular music blasting. You're going to, everybody's going to be the highest levels of sneos, whatever that means, for better, better, better or for worse. You're not like walking into a secular metropolis. You're walking into B'nai Brak. And the moment you walk out of the yeshiva into the streets of B'nai Brak, a coldness towards Mount of Elul, towards Chuba, spreads within your heart. He himself says, when I walked from my house to the yeshiva, I heard people singing. Look at the last line, the last line of this paragraph. Right before I entered the yeshiva, I walked from my home in B'nai Brak to the yeshiva, Shamati Kol Zimra, I heard people singing, people humming to themselves. It caused a coldness in me. I cannot serve God the same way as I did before. So practically speaking, one of the practical expressions of this Rabbeinu Yonah approach to tshuva, this heaviness approach to tshuva, number one, you have to learn Musar. Number two, you have to closet yourself with people, like-minded people. Otherwise, it is not going to work. And now just today in Israel, if you follow the Haredi news, they're talking about a mashver, a crisis among yeshiva students, because the yeshivas can't have the amount of people they used to have. There are hundreds of Haredi yeshiva students that are home, that aren't in the yeshivas. They're home in Haredi communities, but it's still a mashver, it's still a crisis, but you can't spend Elul in the yeshiva, and the Haredi media is talking about this, playing it up. You know, parents are talking about it, kids are talking about it, the mashkikim, the rabbeim, the rabbis, the teachers are talking about it. How can we have Elul without yeshiva bachrim in the yeshiva? How is it going to influence them, impact them um, in the going, how is, that, how is that going to negatively impact them going forward? Good. So that's the end of part three, just taking this approach of Rabbi Yonah and seeing how it plays itself out a little bit in a more contemporary setting 
with practical expressions with, with practical directives. Um, the picture at the top of page eight is a picture of the yeshiva Lumja that was mentioned before in Petach Tekva. Yeshiva Lumja of Poland opened up a branch in Israel in the 1920s, and it is still there in Petach Tekva until today. You could go visit. Um, it is still called itself Yeshiva Lumja in Petach Tekva. Um, it, is, it, is, and it is considered a major yeshiva here in Israel. Um, any comments or questions before we go on to the last section in the, in the, last, in the, last, in the last 10 minutes? Great. So the question is, okay, we're going to see other approaches, 20th century approaches. The question is, if you're taking this approach, if you're taking the approach of Benayona and you're applying it practically, where is the joy? Where is the happiness? And if you want to ask the question more broadly, it's how psychologically healthy is, is, is this approach? Um, I'm not going to answer the question. I'm not even going to, we're not, not going to explore it right here, right now. It's not for me to judge. Right here, I'm just here to give different approaches. I'm not going to say which one, which one, say which one is better or which better, which one is better or worse. But happiness and joy are certainly values in Judaism, certainly values in mental health. So is there happiness and joy in this process of tshuva as described by Rabbi Yona and continued by the Balmi Muslim? So the answer is yes and no. There are two parts to the answer. The first part of the answer is that there is joy. But where does Rabbeinu Yonah, where does the Rambam describe joy? Not during the process, but at the end of the process. Rabbi Lichtenstein, of Aaron Lichtenstein, in an essay, The Joy of Tshuva, which I read only after preparing the source sheets, which I was very happy because it's, 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 it, follows a very, it follows a very similar line, points this out, that if you go through Rabbeinu Yonah, you go through the Rambam, and the, the word simcha, joy, usher, happiness, are found only at the end of the process. When you leave Shul after Na'ilah and Yom Kippur, and you feel cleansed, you did it, you made it through the process, you feel like you're at the top of the world, you feel close to God, that is where the joy is. But during Elul, during, during this time period now, during Rosh Hashanah, during Asar Meshuba, during Yom Kippur, forget about it. There's no joy, simcha is not described there, happiness is not described, serenity is not described. Those things occur at the end of the process when you are successful after going through all of these things. So that's answer number one. Answer number two, which is something which I, which again, if you want to, we're not going to go through it now, but the Rambam starts number 12, I gave you the Rambam Parag Zion, chapter seven, where it describes the results of Shuvah. And the results of Shuvah are very uplifting, very inspiring, very happifying. He uses the word simcha, the word happifying is not a word, but but I like using it anyway. He uses the word simcha in here, he uses the word how amazing tshuva is, what the effect it has on the person. Um, you would think it's like a happy-go-lucky process, but he only describes this as the result of the process, not as, not as, not as um, accompanying the process itself. But there's a broader point here. And if you look at source number 13, um, source number 13 brings us into the broader point. We only have like five minutes to go, to go through it. I didn't mean to go, to go through it in its entirety, but it's something which I think is interesting to think about. Um, and that is, we, as an, I, I'm, Amer I'm an American, I was raised on the, raised on the Declaration, the Declaration of Independence that all human beings are endowed with a right of pursuit of happiness. We live in a world, and we have lived in a world for the last 200 years or so, that human beings in the Western world are born and are raised with an expectation to achieve happiness. What does happiness mean? Feeling of, of contentness, a feeling of serenity. The people, the scholars, Jewish scholars and Jewish tradition, scholars of other religious traditions, um, historians who study this, basically point out, as a unified voice, that this is a relatively modern assumption. 
the fact that human beings are, expect that they should achieve serenity, joy, feel good about themselves in this world, in the, as they're living their lives, day-to-day drudgery, was not assumed in pre-modern times. You look at sources in the Jewish context, Dr. Chava Samuelson, she's a professor of Jewish studies at the University of Arizona, has a book, Happiness in Pre-Modern Judaism, Virtue, Knowledge, and Well-Being. She is not describing who achieves happiness, but what is the definition of happiness in, in the Bible? What is the definition of happiness in rabbinic literature? And she goes through it as a definition of happiness in the Rambam, and then she compares that to, to the Islamic world and the Christian world. Um, so I felt silly putting page two on the, on the source sheet, because put page two in the source sheet, it sounds like I didn't actually read the book. I'll be honest, I only read the first half of the book, which deals with rabbinic times. I did not read into the Rambam and medieval times, because I read this book as part of my, as part of my doctoral research, and I only had to know rabbinic time period, and anything that wasn't necessary, unfortunately, I didn't have time to explore. But this is a succinct summary of, what, of, uh, of her thesis as it applies to the rabbinic time period. To the properly understood, I contend that in Judaism, happiness does not mean possessing material goods, having fun, feeling content, or enjoying physical pleasures. Although some of these elements may be part of happy life. Happiness is not a subjective feeling manifested in a given moment or for a short period of time. Instead, it means flourishing, thriving, experiencing a well-being appropriate to human beings. It's an objective state of affairs. It's an objective state of affairs. That if you follow the path of Torah, you study Torah, follow the path of Torah, that is a definition of happiness, because you're doing the best, the ultimate, the peak of what a human being is able to do. Will you feel subjective happiness? Some moments, yes, some, some moments, not. But the goal is not this feeling of contentment that we modern people associate with happiness. That's not the goal. The goal is to live maximally. The goal is to live optimally. And that is what Chazal means when they describe Ashrei, feeling of Osher, feeling of Simcha. And she goes through this proof by proof by proof. In Halacha, one of the ultimate joyful acts, one of the ultimate acts of Simcha, of joy, is the study of Torah. A mourner, somebody who is an Avela, somebody who had relative passed away, cannot study Torah. The study, studying Torah gives me joy the same way playing with a two-year-old child gives me joy? Absolutely not. It's a very different experience. But from a halachic perspective, studying Torah is an act of simcha, an act of joy, or playing with a child perhaps is a, is a distraction from that, from that thing which I should be doing, which is studying Torah. So if you're coming in with this assumption that who says you're supposed to be feeling content or serene and joyful in your life day to day? It's part of it. Simchas Yom Tov, simply you experience on a, on a festival, on a holiday, does have some of the modern conversations of joy. She goes through it. But the ultimate goal isn't content, content serenity on the inside, subjectively. It's following a path that is going to create the ultimate flourishing of the human being. For Aristotle, it was his set of things. And for the rabbis, for Chazal, it was, it was their set of things. And therefore, if you look at source number 14, there's this guy, Dr. Darren McMahon, he teaches at Dartmouth College. He had wrote a book, The History of Happiness. So this is not from his book, The History of Happiness. This is from an art, short article he wrote. The article is entitled, For most of history, people didn't assume they deserved to be happy. What changed? He describes Aristotle's approach to happiness, which is living with a certain, you know, with a certain set of truths. And he says, this lifestyle wasn't supposed to be easy. The ranks of the content, as Aristotle observed, would ever be the happy few. Because the content, meaning 
Those those the happy people are those people that are living life optimally. I mean, those people that actually understand the nature of the world according to Aristotle and live life accordingly. How many people do that? They're going to be the happy few. But for, for those rare people who commit themselves to the discipline of the regime, the promise of the flourishing life was great. The mere search for higher happiness, Cicero observed, not merely its actual attainment, as a prize beyond all human wealth and honor of physical pleasure. True happiness, in short, had to be earned. We're not talking about subjective feelings of contentment, of serenity, what we associate with happiness, we're talking about living optimally. And therefore, for the Rishonim, this may not have even been a major question. I, you're going to feel bad about yourself. You're not, you're, going to, you're not going to feel happy or joyful or want with the balance in your, the, the balance in your step if you approach tshuva, the way you're, you're being a Yonah describes. Who says you're supposed to? You're supposed to live life optimally. And we're not going to read it inside. You can read, you can read it yourself. Source number 415, Rabbi Yaakov of Lisa. He, is, um, he was a rabbi of Lisa in the 1800s. He is the author of Nesiva Samishpa, the Chavos Das. He made it onto the page of Shulchan Arach. If you open up a standard volume of Shulchan Arach, he's one of the major commentaries. He wrote an ethical will to his children, um, in, which is called Derech Chaim. He, but during his time period, the Hasidic movement was already all over the place. He wrote to them, let's read the first two lines, My beloved children, keep yourselves at great distance from joy and skulk. For how can a person be happy? It's every day we wake up and say, the Hasidim are telling you, always be happy. That is not the Jewish way. The Jewish way is not always to be happy. If you're involved in a mitzvah, feel privileged to be involved in a mitzvah, be happy. If you wake up in the morning and you're eating breakfast, what's there to be happy about? What's there to feel content and serene about? I think this is not the only approach, but this is a approach from medieval Jewish philosophy um, and medieval Jewish philosophy all the way down as, as, as hopefully we've seen. Um, we're not going to go through it inside again. The source number 16, I just wanted to put this in the source sheet, but I think it's, it's fascinating if people want to read it. Um, the Journal of Law and Religion, it was put out by, it was put out by Cambridge University Press, it's put out by Harvard, and in, the, in February 2014, they had a symposium on happiness in different religions. So they had our Jonathan Sachs write about happiness in Judaism. They had the Dalai Lama write about happiness from a Buddhist perspective. They had Christians and Muslims, whose names I don't recognize, write about happiness from a Christian and Muslim perspective. And it's, a, it's really a fast, it's very readable. It's not heavily jargonized in academic, academic language, but it's very, very readable. Rabbi Sachs, I think, has a brilliant, brilliant essay where he writes as follows. Again, just read through it. Happiness, though, is not central to the Judaic value system. The telos of human activity, Judaism, is the pursuit of holiness, not the pursuit of happiness. Happiness might be the result. It might be there. It's associated with this type of lifestyle a lot of times, but it's not the game. He says, why is happiness not the be-all and end-all in Judaism? Because if you're happy, he says, you are content. You're serene. You're going to end up being passive. Judaism was born out of protest. Judaism was born out of Avram Avinu looking at the world and saying, God, you created a world in a certain way, but it's not perfect. We have to perfect the world. We have to be attacking the world to fix the world. We have to make the world better. If you live life in a state of constant happiness, a constant joy, likelihood is you're going to have a very passive approach to social problems, to personal problems, and things of that sort, because you're content with things the way they are. You know, for Rabbi Sachs, that's why Judaism has happiness as a category. It is a halakhically significant category, as he goes on to describe, but it is not the be-all and end-all of Judaism. And I think that is manifests itself in one way, shape, or form in this approach to tshuva that we've been describing from Rabbi Yona down through the Ephesus, down through the Bali Musar. Um, so God willing, next Sunday, 
we will start our survey, the 20th century greats, Greek lead figures. Again, I'll describe why I'm focusing on Rosalvechik, or Pokhan, Baba Trebi, out of other possible figures. I think next week we'll look at, we'll look at Rabbi Salavechik, who's the closest to this, but starts moving away. And we'll see what perhaps 20th century factors started moving, moving him away from this model. Um, it's at 901. I don't want to keep anybody here more than I have to, but if anybody has any comments or questions, I'm more, more than happy to stay on the line afterwards for, for some mistakes. But if anybody wants to leave, definitely feel free. And I apologize for going one minute over. And thank you so much. I really appreciate being able to come together. I really appreciate um, us being able to think about El and Shun and Shubha together in this way. Yeah, Daniel, please. Um, I'm curious what Jonathan Sachs would say about the Akeda um, in this okay. case. It is a great question. He actually has a very interesting read about the Akeda in general. I don't know if it's Pshat or it's apologetics, but his approach to the Akeda, which he bases, bases is based on, a line, on one line of Cook's commentary to a sitter, that the whole point of the Akeda was to set up a false, a false conflict to make a dramatic point for people in future, future generations that this type of conflict is never going to happen again. Um, that's where Cook has one line where he says that, or if he sacks, plays it up. If you want to see it, he has it in his partial sheets, um, his conversations. Um, but also, the, he, ha he has a debate with Richard Dawkins uh, that was sponsored by the BBC, and like back when the, the when Richard Dawkins' book, what's, what's it called, The God's Illusion? Um, Richard Dawkins is a biological, as an evolutionary biologist who wrote a book about atheism in the early, early 21st century. And he and Rabbi Sachs had a public debate sponsored by the BBC. And they debated the Akeda, and Rabbi Sachs goes at length in that debate. You'll find it on YouTube about the disapproach of the Akeda. Um, so yeah, so we're going to see Rabbi Salvechik is actually going to play up the Akeda as the ultimate point of conflict where God wants you to experience this tension and this suffering. And when we'll, we'll see the next week. But thank you. Okay, thank you so much, Rabbi Bronstein. This was, well, you definitely gave me a lot of food for thought. Um, everyone, thank you for joining us again for the second of our nine of course, our nine series series for Elul, um, and we hope you'll be joining us again same time, same place next week for part two with Rabbi Bronstein, if you're able to, um, to join us again Sunday morning for Rabbi Silver, and tomorrow we also have a class in the evening, can, can we change our character perspectives from the Bavli to the Muster Movement, so a little bit more philosophy coming your way, 8 p.m. tomorrow with Sarah Zager, if you have not yet registered, you still can, go to www.drisha.org and then forward slash classes, click on the class that you want. If you don't see a register button, just make sure to follow the links to the Zoom and you can sign up directly there. Uh, thank you again. Have a wonderful rest of your day, everyone, and be well.